Thanks for listening to this show from Aspen Public Radio. Archive podcasts, news, and more are made available thanks to the support of listeners like you. To make a donation of support, log on to aspenpublicradio.org. And thanks. This is Cross Currents on Aspen Public Radio. Good afternoon, I'm Carolyn Heldman. Coming up on today's show, Naomi Oreskes. She's one of the world's leading historians of science. She's a professor of history and science studies at the University of California, San Diego. She's the co-author of the book Merchants of Doubt, which has now been turned into a documentary. Also, Auden Schendler. He's the vice president of sustainability at the Aspen Skiing Company. And Olivia Siegel, the community outreach director at ACES. ACES, along with Aspen Skiing Company and Protect Our Winters with Participant Media, will be screening Merchants of Doubt at the Wheeler Opera House on March 28th. Naomi, I think, I think we should begin with you, how you wrote the book, and with Eric, but how did it come to be? Okay. Well, I'm a historian of science, and about 10, 12 years ago, I was working on a project on the history of oceanography and came across the work of oceanographers, earth scientists, including Roger Revelle and Dave Keeling, who as far back as the 1950s were saying that when we burn fossil fuels, it, put green, it puts greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and that could warm the climate. And so I got interested in the origins of this work, why these people were looking at this question really a long time ago, and came to understand that the scientific evidence about anthropogenic climate change was really very, very solid, and that there was a consensus in the scientific community that climate change was real, going underway, mostly caused by people. And that was in the early 2000s that I was doing that work, so about 15 years ago. I published a paper in 2004 in which I essentially said that. I said, there is a scientific consensus on climate change. We ought to be talking about the policy issue. We ought to be talking about what to do about it. And when I published that paper, I started getting attacked. I got hate mail. I got threatening phone calls. Um, and, uh, yeah, a lot of weird things started happening. So I was at a conference, and I mentioned to some colleagues that I was getting attacked for this work. And one of those colleagues was Eric Conway, who said to me, you know, Naomi, the people who, you atta- who are attacking you, some of them are the same people who attacked Sherry Rowland over the ozone hole. Now, Sherry Rowland is the man who predicted that chlorofluorocarbons would deplete stratospheric ozone, work for which he won the Nobel Prize. So one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century. And my first reaction was, what? That seemed pretty weird that I would be attacked by the same people who attacked Sherry Rowland. And the second reaction was, wow, did you just say my name in the same sentence as Sherry (laughs) Rowland? So um, anyway, so long story short, Eric and I started talking. Eric sent me a pile of materials he had about this ozone story. And then I started digging a little bit to find out who these people were and discovered that two of the four key people had links to the tobacco industry. And it was when we found that link to tobacco and began to realize this was part of a much larger story, uh, that's when I called Eric up and I said, Eric, I think we need to write a book. And that was in 2005. So here we are 15 years later. We now have a book and a movie. And uh, it's been been an interesting ride. The story that we discovered really was a story of what we call serial contrarians or merchants of doubt, mm. people who actually weren't just involved in one scientific debate, but were involved in a whole set of deba- debates involving important public policy issues involving either environmental health or public health, in which these people challenged the evidence of the science 
challenge the science that showed that these things were real and significant problems. And so we started, we wanted to understand why would they do that? Why would otherwise seemingly reputable scientists get involved in these kinds of arguments? And particularly, why would a reputable scientist make common calls with the tobacco industry? And that was the question that we were really trying to answer when we wrote the book. Well, so tell me the answer. So what we found, which was very interesting, was most people assumed it was about money. Most people uh, assumed this was a story of corporate shills, people being bought, people being corrupted by big business. Um, And obviously money is part of the story. Money empowers the denial campaigns. But what we found was that the original merchants of doubt were actually Cold War scientists, and that what was really empowering there was a Cold War ideology of containing communism, that they really saw their life's work as protecting American democracy against the communist threat. And what happens to these men is as the Cold War comes to an end, they start looking for new threats, new enemies. And they find that enemy in environmentalism because they see environmentalists as reds under the bed. They call them watermelons, green on the outside, (laughs) red on the inside. And they fear that environmental problems are being used as a kind of backdoor to socialism in which environmental regulation will be the first step on a road to government control of the marketplace and ultimately government control of our personal choices, our personal freedom. And so they justify this attack on the science as a kind of defense of democracy. You know, uh, Naomi, what's interesting about that is that half of that argument seems incredibly dated. Uh, You know, we're not fearful of the commies anymore. But the other, but half of it uh, is super relevant because the argument today is not about science. It's about big government and government in our lives. Exactly. And I think one of the reasons this is so important, well, actually two reasons. One is that it shows that historical legacies die hard. It's one of the reasons I care about history because, um, you know, as they say uh, on the National Archives, the past isn't past, right? We live with these legacies all the time. That's Faulkner. That's Faulkner, too. Oh, Faulkner. Yeah. Sorry, right. The, the archives is, right, archives is the past is prologue, right, which is related with different. Thank you. Um, so your liberal arts education did you well. Finally, <laughs> finally. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a while. Um, right. We live with these legacies even if we don't realize it. And by realizing it, by understanding it, it helps us, I think, to deal with it. But also, as you say, what's happened now is even though the Soviet Union has broken apart, doesn't exist anymore, this argument about big government continues to resonate, and it gets picked up by groups like the Tea Party, the Americans for Prosperity, who try to persuade us that they're defending freedom, they're defending democracy. And then the other piece of it is that even though you might think that communist bashing would no longer be relevant, if you listen to Rush Limbaugh, if you listen to Glenn Beck, and we have this in the film, these guys actually continue with this anti-communist theme even today. They're still accusing environmentalists of being socialists, still accusing them of being watermelons. So even though it's a preposterous claim, it has a, a lot of currency with some people in America. Carolyn, do you mind if I continue no, 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 this go thread? Ahead. I- so it seems that uh, I find it hard to to let go of the notion that this is money based. I mean, the tobacco industry had had a tremendous financial interest in prolonging denial on on tobacco and cancer, and certainly the fossil fuel industry wants to monetize all the the carbon in the ground. So, is there an overlap between um, protecting capitalism 
uh, as it is and and, and you know fighting communism and big government it's it's it, the money is almost inextricably linked to the ideology absolutely and you know one of the things that i always say it, it is about both this is a story about money and ideology and the power that comes from uniting those two things in the book we focus more on the ideology frankly because we thought the money piece was obvious and we didn't think people would think that was very interesting or kind of informative but the ideological piece seemed more surprising maybe not as obvious and it would also help explain why scientists would do this i mean we know why the fossil fuel industry wants to deny climate change but it wasn't so obvious why a prominent scientist would participate in that so we were trying to explain this piece of it that seemed more perplexing but absolutely you're right this doesn't go anywhere without money if there hadn't been this giant influx of hundreds of millions of dollars into think tanks and denial groups from the fossil fuel industry and also other regulated industries the whole thing would have died out i mean our original gang of four three of those four guys you know have passed on and um readers can speculate about whether they're in heaven or somewhere else but um you know they're dead but their legacy lives on and part of the reason it lives on is because of money and so but but the reason why the ideology remains important is that if this were just about money, I think most people would see through it. Most people get it that, of course, the tobacco industry wants to sell tobacco, and of course, the fossil fuel industry wants to continue to sell fossil fuels. They're the most profitable industry in the history of mankind. So that's not really surprising either, and I think a lot of us would kind of smell a rat and be dismissive of the industry claims if they were only coming from industry. But when you hear them from think tanks that pretend to be independent, when you th hear them from scientists who pretend to be independent, and when it gets picked up then by political leaders who also pretend to be independent, then it has a kind of power that it wouldn't have if it were just the industry protecting its obvious self-interest. Naomi, do you think that absent the, the hundreds of millions of dollars of, of corporate money for disinformation, that this, uh, the ideology alone would have driven this, this, uh, this kind of disinformation <laughs> campaign. No, I don't. I mean, I think that's where you're right about the importance of the money. I think the money keeps it alive. Like I said before, I think this would have died out. You know, when Bill Nuremberg, Fred Seitz, and Bob Jastrow died, I think that a lot of what they did would have died with them, and we would just view it as a kind of historic anomaly related to the end of the Cold War. But because this money flows in and keeps it alive, and then a whole new generation of people have moved into this, uh, this activity, um, no. And the same with it as a scientific question. I mean, I get asked a lot, well, you know, isn't Willie Soon entitled to his opinion? Of course he's entitled to his opinion, but without a million dollars of funding from the fossil fuel industry, it would have been only that. It would have just been his opinion. But instead... He, it gets kept alive. The research program gets kept alive. He gets invited to Heartland Institute conferences. He gets invited to be on television and on the radio. So the money is a key part in keeping and sustaining this idea of debate, which would have died out on its own uh, without the uh, sustaining force of money. This is Cross Currents on Aspen Public Radio. My guests are Naomi Oreskes. She's author of the book that inspired the documentary The Merchants of Doubt. Auden Schendler is Vice President of Sustainability at Aspen Skiing Company, and Olivia Siegel is the Director of Community Outreach at ACES. ACES, Aspen Skiing Company, Protect Our Winters, and Participant Media are presenting The Merchants of Doubt, 
at the Wheeler Opera House on March 28th. What about the trend in, in, in society that I, it came in part from George W. Bush that was anti-science, period? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have, you have a or, uh, seemingly organic uh, anti, <coughs> anti-vaccine movement that isn't arguably funded by, um, by, by money, uh, industrial money, but it, it fits the ideology, which, again, as a government, don't reach into my, into my life. Right, exactly. And that, you know, that in a way I think is, again, good evidence of how the ideological component can be really powerful. And, uh, you know, people ask me about vaccines all the time. And one of the things I say is, look how powerful the anti-vaccine movement is without even any kind of corporate sponsorship. But now imagine if Big Pharma were actually on the anti-vaccine side. Well, then, you know, we would be having measles outbreaks, not just in Disneyland, but all across the country. That's a that's a great point. Uh, it's sort of like weather was already bad. Now add a lot of CO two to the atmosphere. See how bad it gets. Exactly. Naomi, exactly. you you had mentioned Willie Soon, which listeners may or may not be familiar with that story. That's a he's a, a scientist who was one of the few uh, cited by the right as, as uh, working on uh, counter or climate denial. And uh, the front page of the New York Times recently exposed him as being funded by Exxon Mobil, among others. Uh, talk a little bit about that. That kind of blew up uh, in the last two weeks. Right. So Willie Soon is very, very important because he really illustrates how a lot of this works. So part of the way that denial campaigns get credibility is that they need to have scientists play a role because they need to have a scientist to make it seem as if there actually is a scientific debate. And, of course, in any scientific question, you can always find people who have different views because science is diverse. There are people out there who don't believe in plate tectonics. There are scientists who don't believe in quantum mechanics or relativity. But usually those people are just viewed as, well, you know, Joe, he's got some curious ideas, or these people are viewed as out of date, you know, if they're still clinging to views that are now considered refuted. And it doesn't really go anywhere, and it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really cause a problem. Like, they don't really hurt anybody by having their outlier views. But in this case, what's happened is that this, fellow Willie Soon, who is a, um, I think he's a research associate is his title at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He's an engineer by training, but he's done research in astrophysics. He has become a prominent climate change denier, and he's been that for a long time, claiming that the observed warming is caused by solar radiation. Now, other scientists have looked at this. Uh, NASA has collected enormous amounts of data on solar radiation, And in the scientific community, there's overwhelming agreement that solar radiation doesn't explain uh, the observed warming. In fact, if anything, the opposite, that over the last 20 years or so, radiation has been steady or even slightly declining. So that's a question that scientists have looked at, they've studied, they've published lots and lots of papers. There's a broad consensus that, of course, there's variation in the sun, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about climate change. So soon takes this different view, but he has been very, very prominent, and particularly on the lecture circuit, not in the scientific community, where, frankly, he's not taken seriously, but on the lecture circuit at, um, you know, speaking to think tanks and on, uh, you know, in the media, because his work is kept alive by his funding from the fossil fuel industry. And what recently came to light is that he's received over a million dollars from fossil fuel interests not just to support his research, but also to support, it appears, to support his testimony in Congress as well. So to use this work then to make the claim 
in the public sphere uh, that there's a legitimate scientific question about the causes of climate change. The reason we're here talking is because uh, there's a movie that uh, was made, a documentary. We are screening this documentary, Merchants of Doubt, at the Wheeler Opera House on Saturday, March 28th. This is a free screening. It'll be at 6 o'clock. It's a feature-length documentary. And then, uh, Naomi, we're so thrilled. You're actually going to be here in Aspen, and there will be an opportunity for Q&A after the film. Um, And then, in case you haven't had enough, we're actually doing a free reception at the Wheeler from 8 to 9 o'clock. It's a Saturday, so, you know, you can uh, rally for that. And uh, once people have seen the movie, um, you know, we we wanted to create an opportunity for there to be uh, some ongoing dialogue about, you know, what people learned. And um, we're just really excited. How's the film been received so far? Well, so far, great. We just got a really, really good, thoughtful, uh, interesting review in the New York Times uh, yesterday. So, Olivia, will Naomi be taking questions? Anyone, Auden, will you be there? Will, will there be other yeah. folks in the panel? Yeah, so the event is being presented by uh, not only ACES, but Aspen Skiing Company, Protect Our Winters, and Participant Media. Um, so there will be a lot of really knowledgeable uh, people in attendance. Um, Naomi, what's your next project? Um, well, it's interesting you say, because I have more than one next project. So we've already written another book. Eric and Conway, wrote, Eric Conway and I wrote a short book called The Collapse of Western Civilization. It's a very modest title. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a parable. It's a science fiction parable where a historian in the future is looking back on the present trying to explain how it was possible that we knew so much about what was happening to us, and we knew what was causing it, and yet we did so little to stop it. So it was an attempt to take the story of Merchants of Doubt um, and the science around climate change and distill it into a readable, engaging narrative less than 100 pages long. That was published uh, earlier this year, so people interested can look that up, The Collapse of Western Civilization. And that book has been an amazing success. We've signed contracts for that translations into eight different languages. So maybe we'll have a movie of that, too. I don't know. Um, And then Eric and I are trying to work now. We get fan mail now, which is a very strange thing. Um, So thank you to people who write to me. I get get lots of really great feedback from people who've read our books. And the the ratio now is running very, very consistently. Collapse was a great book. Now will you please tell us how we solved this problem? Has the ratio ratio of hate to to praise changed or is yes, it dramatically it's really interesting how early on way back in 2004 it was all hate mail because that it was interesting how like i got on the radar screen of the hate people uh maybe because of mark morano or someone like him uh you know pointing me out i got on that radar screen much more quickly than i got on the radar screen of people who appreciated what i was doing but that's really really shifted of course the reality is there are far more people out there who understand this problem and get in and appreciate work. I mean, we're the majority, right? The deniers, the haters are actually a relatively small minority. So, yeah, now my, my fan mail now runs like 50 to 1 good. So um, that's been fabulous. It's been really terrific. And, you know, almost uniformly people say, please, please write a book telling us how to solve this problem. So Eric and I are working on something that we are tentatively calling anti-collapse, uh, that we hope will be a kind of companion book to collapse that will, in fact, try to paint a vision of what a positive solution might look like. But as you can imagine, that's a much harder book to write. 
your stat on fan mail versus hate mail, I think, is an important indicator. And it, it gets at this question I've been pondering, which is, you know, 40% of Americans don't believe in evolution. And yet we became a scientifically advanced society. We are leaders in medicine and space travel. At some point, it feels like, you know, fighting these rearguard battles against the deniers doesn't matter. In the United States now, we have aggressive climate policy through the EPA. Um, it's true that Congress is half deniers or more than half. Um, but societies move on. You know, you don't need consensus, and you never will have it. I agree. I think that's a terribly important point, and on two levels. First of all, you know, the 40% figure, of course, depends a lot on how you ask the question. So it turns out that actually most Americans do think that there's evolution, but they subscribe to what I call homo sapiens exceptionalism. They think that evolution only applies to plants and, and monkeys and earthworms, but not to people. And, okay, you know, fair enough. We could respect that view. But as you say, it doesn't really prevent us from solving problems, have, curing diseases, having vaccinations. We can do lots and lots of good things in the world, and we don't need everyone to agree, and especially in politics. I mean, nobody ever agrees on anything. We didn't have 100% of the American people supporting the Civil Rights Act. We didn't have 100% of Americans, by any stretch of the imagination, supporting the abolition of slavery. And even, this is, I was thinking about this the other day, when I was in high school, I wrote a paper about how the majority of Americans living in the colonies in 1776 did not support independence from Britain. That's a little-known fact. So, you know, you don't... It's good to have a majority when you make a major political uh, decision, because in a democracy you should have majority rule, but you don't need to have 100%, and it's not realistic to expect 100%. It's not even realistic to expect 80% or 75%. Most of the polls now show that about 80% of Americans do believe that climate change is real, and some figure close to that do think that the government should be doing something about it. So we do have the majority of the American people on our side. The question now is how to get the political action to match the will of the people. Any ideas? <laughs> good follow-up question. This is a good time to end the interview. <laughs> yeah, that's invite the readers to write to me and give me their good ideas that I can put into my, that I can stainless, shamelessly steal and put into my next book. And well, to show up to the Wheeler Opera House. And come to the Wheeler Opera House, exactly. There are, uh, you know, there are an interesting <laughs> approach that's being taken is to say, okay, if, if this is an ideological problem, let's have a solution that meets that ideology. And the, the big problem is uh, government's going to intervene in your life in a, in a catastrophic way. Well, is there a way to start to solve climate change uh, by making government smaller? And, and some proposals have been, well, what do, what do people hate? What is the right hate? They hate the payroll tax. You get your check and there's this big chunk out of it. So cut a piece of that, but, but transfer that tax to carbon. So you're, you're taxing pollution. So there are these interesting ideas that are coming out there and even and the right is talking about them. But we seem so far from that conversation to passing legislation, it's almost despair-causing. Exactly. And, and, that, and I talk about that a lot. I feel like that's one of the things I learned by reading this book. And my own political views shifted as a result. Sorry, not reading, writing the book. Well, reading it, too. But um, I came to understand, I, you know, when you're writing history, one of the things you have to do is you have to try to understand your subjects. 
which means try on some level to be empathetic, even to views you don't agree with. And so the piece of this that I am sympathetic to and have come to, to some extent, actually, I do agree with, we don't want the government telling us how to live our lives. I don't think any of us want that. So if there's a way to do this and minimize the government, you know, the heavy hand of government, or what I like to call the visible hand of the government, let's look for ways to do that. Let's look for ways to do this in ways that maximize individual choice and minimize government authority. And you're exactly right. The carbon tax, the revenue-neutral carbon tax, or the nearly revenue-neutral carbon tax that replaces payroll tax is one really brilliant way to do that. And that's why in the film, you know, we feature Bob Inglis, the Republican congressman from South Carolina, who is a big, big advocate of exactly what you just said, reducing payroll tax, have a carbon tax. Tax something you don't want, which is pollution. Don't tax or reduce the tax on the things you do want, which is income. But the sad story about Bob Inglis and the reason why he's such a powerful figure in the film is that he lost his seat in South Carolina when he started to make that argument. So I like to talk about the Clean Air Act Amendments, 1995. Republican President George W. Bush finds a market-based solution to control the air pollution that caused acid rain. I like to talk about AB 32 in California, California emissions trading law, how Democrats and Republicans came together in California to pass a bill to control carbon pollution. So we have examples where it's been done successfully in the past, examples that Republicans have supported. We can point to those examples, and at least for some people, that seems to be a helpful thing to do. This is Cross Currents on Aspen Public Radio. My guests are Naomi Oreskes. She's author of the book that inspired the documentary The Merchants of Doubt. Auden Schendler is Vice President of Sustainability at Aspen Skiing Company. And Olivia Siegel is the Director of Community Outreach at ACES. ACES, Aspen Skiing Company, Protect Our Winters, and Participant Media are presenting The Merchants of Doubt at the Wheeler Opera House on March 28th. One, one goal we have for this, uh, this screening at the Wheeler is that we really would like members of the community who, who deny the science or who disagree with policy solutions to attend. And um, I think it's an opportunity for us to have a dialogue on, on solutions. And, and I think a point that isn't made enough is that if, if what we fear is, is giant, oppressive government, um, you know, your book, The Collapse of Western Civilization, suggests that we're going to have a police state uh, if we let uh, the planet warm f- above four degrees Celsius. And that's, uh, you know, similar to what, what China's encountering now is they have such bad pollution that they fear revolution. They already are a police state and they're going to use their powers to solve the problem. So, you know, the, if you don't want big government, you have to solve this problem now. Exactly. And that, that is exactly why we wrote Collapse. So thank you for pointing that out. I mean, that is the message of Collapse, that if you are worried about, you know, a police state, intrusive government, you should be very, very keen to try to solve this problem now, because unmitigated climate change isn't going to be good for democracy. The point now is we need to focus on solutions. If you engage in a fight or a disagreement or even a dialogue with skeptics, contrarians, deniers, whatever you want to call them, you've lost because then you're keeping the controversy alive. The minute you agree to debate, then you're in a debate framework, and then they've won. So you cannot win a debate with somebody who wants to fight with you about the science. But if we can have a conversation about solutions, then there can be many voices, because there are lots of possible solutions to this. And 
our solutions will depend in part on what's technologically feasible, but they will also depend in part on our values. If we were comfortable with a police state, I could tell you tomorrow how we could solve this problem, but we, I don't want a police state, despite what some people on the right wing will accuse me of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, some people have misread collapse to say that I think we should become a communist dictatorship. I'm like, wow, these guys so don't get irony. Right. <laughs> but, and I don't feel like the message in collapse is, is all that subtle, but some people don't seem to get it. Or maybe they haven't read the book. They're just accusing me of, of stuff. Folks want more information about the book, the movie, or the event. Uh, we've got a bunch of links up on aspennature.org. And you can check it out there. Also, uh, RSVP. Be awesome to know you're coming. And the other thing is we will have uh, Naomi and Eric's books at this event. And listeners should know that, that Naomi will sign those books. and then Absolutely. I'll sign them twice if they like. All right. Good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi Oreskes, she is the author of the book that inspired the documentary The Merchants of Doubt. Auden Chandler is the Vice President of Sustainability at the Aspen Skiing Company. Olivia Siegel is the Community Outreach Director at Aspen Center for Environmental Studies. Thank you all. Thanks, Thanks Karen. Thanks. See you, Naomi. This is Cross Currents on Aspen Public Radio. If you missed the show or would like to hear it again, go to our website, aspenpublicradio.org. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening to this show from Aspen Public Radio. Archive podcasts, news, and more are made available thanks to the support of listeners like you. To make a donation of support, log on to aspenpublicradio.org. And thanks.